Welcome back to Outside the System. Today, I'm talking to JP Willett, an entrepreneur with a fascinating story. He's the founder of Red Star Vapor, a company with 43 retail locations. But the more interesting part of his story is how he got his initial funding. It all started with $20,000 in winnings from poker. During our conversation, we explore the poker story, his business adventures, mistakes made along the way, as well as what JP is working on today. My biggest takeaway is that despite all the Twitter threads and business school advice, there are so many different paths to start a successful business. As always, you can support the show directly on Fountain or any other podcast 2.0 player. Thank you to the 255 people who have supported the show so far. Let's dive in. JP, great to have you on the show today. Oh, thanks, Neil. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, excited to do uh, my first podcast interview. Yeah, that makes it even better that it's your first one, and I'm sure it's gonna I'm sure it's gonna go great. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I talked about this in the intro. I mean, I was really intrigued by you when I came across you on um, on Twitter. Actually, there was a thread that you had. Maybe it's a couple weeks back now at this point that kind of went viral and came across my feed. And it's basically how you got your start. Uh, with your business in terms of funding it through a poker game and uh, reminded me of the the famous FedEx uh, story. So maybe before we dive into all that, would love for you to introduce yourself and uh, just a little bit about what you're working on and, and what you're building. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, uh, obviously I'm John Paul Willett and founded Red Star Vapor in 2014. But prior to that, I had founded a company called Vota Vapor and um, was very, very early into the electronic cigarette space. Um, so early that people used to ask me if I invented it, uh, people that I had met. And, um, but, you know, now I'm no longer day-to-day CEO, still own the company, but really just focusing my time on um, being with my kids more, um, looking at new projects and trying to figure out that like second phase of um, my professional career looks like as far as an entrepreneur. How did you get in then to the vapor space? I didn't realize you were there so early. People asked if you were invented the product. How did you get into that so early? I mean, how did you even come across it? Right. So uh, it, I'm, I was born in Arizona, and then but I moved away as a kid. And then I uh, came back in 2010, and I made friends with a guy who uh, ran a smoke shop. And I used to hang out there all the time, you know, smoking hookah. And one day he is on the phone with a sales rep from another electronic cigarette company at the time, gets off the phone and tells me that, hey, you've got to get into this business. And he shows me this little four, uh, four, uh, sorry, seven ml. Yes, it was like, a, like an eighth of an ounce, like a seven ml bottle of e-liquid. And he goes, I buy these things for four bucks and I sell them for 12. And I thought it was the stupidest thing ever, right? So he's telling me about electronic cigarettes and how you can have a strawberry flavor and a cherry flavor and all this stuff. And like I said, I thought it was stupid. I thought no one's going to use this thing. And he tells me what turned out to be a lie, but he said, I sell a hundred bottles of this a month and there's 300 smoke shops in Phoenix. So do the math on that. And I did the math and I thought, wow, there's a huge opportunity here. Um, And so, you know, we sat there just batting the idea around and after about 20 minutes, um, you know, I realized I was like, okay, this could be really, really huge. Uh, But when I say that he lied, I mean it in the sense that like he was selling maybe five bottles a month. Like, you know, but if he had told me I'm selling five, I never would have gotten into the business. So I'm pretty grateful to my friend Mo for lying to me on uh, how much he uh, sold. (laughs) 
Best lie, probably the best lie that you've ever heard in your life. It is. It's the most <laughs> beneficial lie I've ever had. Uh, I've ever have been told to me in my life. So, you know, so, you know, I look at the product and, you know, he gave me one of the kits that he sold and, you know, I Google all the ingredients on the back and try to figure out like, okay, there's like five ingredients. So I'm Googling like where to find them. Um, and for at the time, like nicotine was the real bottleneck because obviously electronic cigarettes contain nicotine. Um, and if it wasn't for Alibaba.com, I don't think I'd be in this business. Now, I'd been active on Alibaba since 2006. Um, I had tried a variety of little import businesses before that, buying random things and reselling them from Alibaba. And I was able to find the you know nicotine on there. And after doing the math on the margins on what it would cost to manufacture the product, which took me about 20 minutes, you know, I realized that there was a huge opportunity here if the market grew, um, you know, and at the time it was, it was fairly non-existent um, except for a few kiosks and malls and random places, a couple of websites selling vapes. So it was definitely very, very early into the business. Interesting. So then like, I mean, I guess there's like a simultaneous story going on, right? Because you have a supply sourcing issue, right? So you're sourcing from Alibaba. But then there's also the demand side that you were kind of also seeing people like, I guess, ad adopt this more. So, you know, I guess like, what was that period like? Because now everybody knows what, what vapes are and stuff. So it's not like a new, you know, it's not like something people, even if they haven't done it, they've, they've heard of it. At the right. time, probably nobody had even heard of it. Yeah, I didn't know that though. So I, I assumed, I assumed through my friend's story, you know, he's the only guy I really knew in that space. Um, that it was that there was big demand there for it, right? So, yeah, I already thought that it, you know, yeah, it, but it wasn't, and I didn't find that out for six months or so. So this is like April 2011, right? Is when I first come across the idea, and within, like I said, 20 minutes, I knew I was going to do this business. Um, you know, so I said about the usual, like, okay, I need money to start a business. So you know, you call everybody you know who's got some money or more than you at least and uh you know friends family members acquaintances um and i was able to scrounge together uh you know about almost five thousand dollars in loans from people not investments they lent me the money and they wanted a particular interest rate back if it turned out um and you know it wasn't much it was like maybe five thousand dollars between my savings and what i borrowed from other people uh, which you know was it nearly enough to i didn't have a great network let's put it that way <laughs> and um yeah. So what happens next in the timeline is I ended up moving to upstate Washington. Uh, my older brother was stationed with the military up there. He had a spare bedroom and I decided to move up there and live for free while I try to raise more money from friends and family. Um, and then, um, yeah, so I just, uh, you know, I've got all this time to kill because I don't have enough money to start this business. And that's why I started going to the casino and playing poker. So, so before we get there, the reason you were raising the money was you were starting a, the vape company, but it wasn't the retail chain that you have today, right? Yeah, that's it was, correct. It was, yep. So yeah. So what was that business? Yeah. Well, it, it was still in the vape industry, but I, yeah, I kind of went about things, I guess, backwards, um, how I probably should have done it. Um, it all worked out, so I guess it's okay, but I didn't want to get into like the hardware end of the business, you know, importing the products from China, the devices themselves, and then selling them. 
that was something I ended up having to do at a later time. But I thought that I thought the market already existed enough, and there was enough importing of the actual hardware device that used a vape. Um, I thought there was enough of that already happening, and that was not true at all. So I figured, you know, when you sell someone a device, you're selling them one every six months, one every year. You know, so I wanted to sell a product that you would use every day. Um, so that's why I went to the actual the liquid side that goes uh, I manufactured the product. I ended up manufacturing the product that um, was the liquid that goes inside of your vapor devices. Because I figured that's something you're going to buy more often, uh, like the razor blade and the razor, uh, you know, uh, thing they teach in business school, I guess. I didn't know at the time. But um, yeah, so I was like, that's that's where the money's going to be is in the repeat business where you're buying another bottle of e-liquid every week or every two weeks. Um, so that was my plan was to launch a brand, um, get it into smoke shops, sell it on the Internet. Um, and that was the idea at the time. And, and really what it was in the beginning was I had this idea, like if I could make $100,000, I would um, then go start a different business. Something that like mm. didn't deal with smoke shops. Um, but yeah, that, that was the goal at the time was to make 100000 and then go do something else. Did you have any idea what that something else was? Yeah, I did. Um, I did actually. Yeah, I wanted to like start like a... I guess it's like an opposite of a five hour energy shot. It'd be like a relaxation shot. Um, I don't drink alcohol anymore. So I wanted like this, like, you know, where you could kind of uh, decompress from the day at home sort of beverage without drinking, yeah. without drinking alcohol. Yeah. So that was the idea at the time. Um, glad I didn't go do it. I don't really think there's a huge demand for that. So um, glad I never ended up in that business, honestly. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's sometimes how it works with these things. Yeah. So then, so then you, so you were, you were, you started that original business. Then how did you end up pivoting into the retail side of things? Right. So, or, or was that a pivot or was that a completely separate business? No, it was, um, all right. So I launched, you know, I win the money. We'll, we'll do the poker story in a bit, but I win the money. I moved back to Arizona later that year. This is still 2011. I run a small, tiny, like thousand square foot warehouse. Um, we're like a contractor garage, you know, like or just real small little dump of a place. And I literally start manufacturing, right? I, I bought bottles from China, labels, uh, boxes. I hired a graphic designer, um, tried to slap together the first website myself. And, and you know, $20,000 or so, it's not much one to live on and two to start a business with. So pretty quickly, I was out of money. But, you know, I had thousands and thousands of bottles. So, you know, I go around, I start selling this to smoke shops and nobody will pay for it up front. Right. So I'm literally leaving. They want to do it front. on consignment. They exactly. want to do it on consignment. Yeah. And this is when I realized that, like, there wasn't a demand for the product. I mean, there was some, but not much. Um, you know, I figured I was going to go and start just making money hand over fist right off the bat. But it was pretty awful. Um you know, you, you drop off a box, of, you know, 24, 25 units of, of the e-liquid. And then you'd come back a week or two later and they'd have sold one or two. So like sometimes I was like driving clear across like the Phoenix Metro to collect $10 from a guy. Um, yeah, because I was selling them like $5 a unit. And it was just, it yeah. was, it was atrocious. It was, yeah, it was, it was not really a, a great business for a solid year. 2012 was up until the end of the year was pretty bad. 
Um, so late 2012, I get into contract manufacturing where I'm making products for other people in their brand, you know, in their brand name. Um, and I randomly met a guy in Utah. He wanted me to make a brand for him. So I did, you know, that deal really kind of saved, uh, the business at the time. Um, it was like $7,500 order, but it was the most amount of money I'd made in a single order to date, um, at that time. So that really kind of gave me some lifeblood there and convinced me that like, this would still work. Um, and then, you know, we roll into 2013, you know, more people are opening up vape shops. Everybody wants something to differentiate themselves from their competitors or the smoke shops in particular, you know, so I start making more and more private label brands and we do that for pretty much all of 2013. And it, it got pretty good. I think we did a couple of million dollars in revenue in 2013. Um, well, less than it was like, yeah, less than $2 million in revenue, but it was, um, it was a solid business, right? Like I could see that there was a path forward now um, through contract manufacturing, but the margins were, they were not, they were not good. Um, and so how I got into retail was I, I'd employed my brother um, to work for me. And then we'd hired a few employees and I kind of just got bored with the business, right? I um, actually wanted to open a restaurant and my brother told me what a terrible idea that was. So I decided like, I guess I'll try a retail vape shop. I'm already in the vape business. So retail seemed like kind of a natural extension and a new challenge, something interesting. And when I started, I never had any idea that it would eventually become this. That wasn't the plan. It was literally like, have a cool new project to do and let's see where it goes sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, and then it ended up becoming it ended up becoming a chain of retail stores. Which you so are they fully owned by corporate, or do you have a franchise model? No, nope, no franchise. These yep. no franchises. They're all owned um, corporately. And you have forty three right now, right? Or at least that's what I saw. Uh, forty uh, forty four right now, 44. and we've got two more in development. So we should have uh, we should nice. be up to forty six um, here in the next month or two. That, I mean, that kind of scale on retail is uh, just fascinating. I mean, so mo I would say probably the majority of listeners of this show are coming from the digital world where, you know, code, code executes pretty much perfectly every time and can, is repeatable. You know, the real world isn't entirely like that. So, I mean, we'll get into this. I, I definitely want to talk about how you've scaled this, but just yeah. I, I just want to make a comment that, you know, having 46 probably in the near future locations is no joke. Um, you know, I have a couple friends in the retail space, but they're only at, you know, one or two stores and I see the challenges that, you know, they go through and it's I mean, trying to multiply that by 23 times more units is like, it's hard to even imagine, uh, the complexity or not the complexity, but like the things that can come up across that many locations. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, there's so many challenges with brick and mortar that I imagine, entrepreneurs and digital businesses don't really have. I mean, they've got their own set of challenges that I'm probably not fully aware of, but, you know, brick and mortar, uh, you know, uh, you know, icy roads, there you go. Um, you know, we've got stores in Colorado, icy roads, no one's opening today. Um, you know, all sorts of things. I mean, um, you know, when the, the COVID shutdowns, you know, we had to close down brick and most of our brick and mortar stores across the whole chain. Um, it's, yeah, and then you're having, you know, people have got to show up on time, right? I mean, you know, uh, someone's got to unlock the door, turn on the point of sale system. Um, it's, you know, 
it is a huge set of challenges, but I, I love brick and mortar retail, right? I'm a huge advocate for it. I think more people, especially young people should be looking at these opportunities. Cause like, you know, it, there really is something about like having this dedicated loyal customer base that, you know, by name, you know, the, people walk in the door and we already know who they are. We know what they buy. Right. And we're kind of like a mix between like a retail and a bartender in a sense, right? Like people tell us their life stories all the time. It's, um, it's not like going in shopping at circle K, right? It's, you know, vape is a lot stickier, right? You know, customers yep. are pretty generally fairly loyal to a particular retailer. Maybe it's just a geographic, like I live in this area, this is the closest one and that's what brought them there. But um, yeah, I'm a huge fan of it. And I think more people should be looking into it as an opportunity, you know, for their entrepreneurial exploits. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think it's, it's underrated um, for sure. And I think, yeah, you're right. Digital entrepreneurs go through a different set of sub struggles compared to brick and mortar. But I think just in terms of where attention gets paid, there's probably a lot that can be done offline and probably also like a combination of these approaches. I mean, this is one of the questions I have for later, but just, and this kind of goes back to the demand thing that we talked about. It's like when you started, the demand wasn't quite there. Obviously now your, your business captures existing demand, but I'm curious if there were things you did in the middle to try to like educate or um, teach the consumer, I guess, about this, th that this even exists. And we'll, we'll get to that. I think what I definitely want to get into now, because I, I don't want to get too far in the story without, without talking about this, is this infamous poker story. So, I mean, I, I, that's what caught my attention initially. And I mean, it's just a, an awesome story. So yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll let you take that from whatever point you want. Right. So yeah, so I'm living up in Washington, a uh, small town called Arlington. It's nor about an hour or so north of Seattle. And there's a casino, you know, not far from where I was living with my brother. And, um, you know, so I've got all this time on my hands, right? You know, I'm working on the ideas, designing the packaging, working the graphic designers, but there's a lot of hours in the day. And, you know, I just don't have enough money to get this thing really going. And so, you know, I'm calling people, waiting to hear back from people that are, you know, going to lend me money or invest with me, you know, for equity, which nobody ends up doing. Um, and except for the first people who lent me some money. And so I start, you know, to kill time going to the casino and playing poker. I've always been like a fan of poker. Uh, at one time I had aspirations to be pro, but like I'm genuinely not good at poker, right? Like I'm super easy to read. I have like apparently some incredible tells. And, um, but anyway, so I'm going up there a couple hundred bucks, a couple days a week playing, um, no hold on poker. And so I'm up there and this is like mid June, 2011. I've been in Seattle now for like a couple of months and yeah, I just, I have this incredible day, right? So I think I'm up probably $1,500 off the original 200 that I came with. Like, I'm just having a really, really good day. Like I'm getting great hands and people are calling and it's just, it's working out like perfectly for me. So there's a shift at the table. A guy gets up, somebody else moves into his seat and a couple hands later, you know, is when we have this bad beat. And the guy who was there, he was a super tight player. He, um, like, you know, he never called uh, unless he had something, right? So I'm in the big blind. Um, it, you know, it's two five, no limit Texas Hold'em. Um, so small blind pays two, big blind plays five. The guy in seat three, you know, he ends up drawing pocket sixes. 
and he raises at 25 preflop. I call, and I've got a bad hand, right? Uh, it's 5-4 of diamonds. Um, so pseudo connectors are okay, but not at a 25 preflop call. And, but it's, it's like, I'm like fairly, I don't know, I believe in like omens and stuff. So my dad was born in 1954. So like anytime there's like a number that like I have a reference point to in real life, I like, I'm like, oh, this is interesting. So like I was born in 87, I will always play 8-7. Like, I don't care where I'm at. I don't care what it is. I always play 8-7. So if anybody ever plays <laughs> me in poker in the future, like just know I've got a wide range of uh, hands I play. So, you know, I call, right? And then... You know, um, absolutely. And do you want me to go absolutely. through my like step by step of what happened? Every okay, yeah. So, so I go through. Uh, you know, I play. Um, you know, I play this hand right, and so I've got five four diamonds. Other guys got pocket sixes. All right, so flop comes out. Um, it's six of clubs, seven of diamonds, and ten of hearts. Um, so this guy's already hit trips, uh, trip sixes, and I've got um, uh, a straight draw at this point. Right. So, um, I check and he bets 50 at that point. I call that $50 bet. Then the, the fourth card that comes out, no limit hold'em is called the turn on that turn comes out a six of diamonds. So I don't know that, he, that he's already made quads, um, you know, four of a kind. And at that point, um, I've got a straight, I've got the flush draw and a straight draw um, and the, the straight flush draw there. Um, so what happens, he, I bet $100 at this point because I feel like I get a lot of options um, to, uh, to win this hand. I feel like I'm in a good position, not knowing any idea what this guy has. And I'm terrible at reading people and I hadn't played against this guy uh, except for that day. So I didn't really know like what his bet patterns were and what his range was much. Um, so I bet a hundred, he raises the 300, I call and the river comes out. Um, and it's a three of diamonds. So now I've got this straight flush, um, which, you know, is a phenomenal hand. Still, I, I misplayed the hand pretty badly. So I bet 500, he raises to a thousand, which was almost all of his chips at that point, And I call, which was the majority of my chips as well that I had for that day. So all told the pots, like it's close to like $2,500 pot at this point, a little bit more than that. Um, and we flip over our cards and I'm just thinking that I want the hand with a straight flush. And, you know, cause I don't even know what a bad beat is at this point. I haven't played the casino for only a couple of months now. So I'm not really familiar with it, but this guy grabs my arm and I'm trying to grab the, I'm like reaching to grab the chips and he grabs my arm and he says like, don't touch anything. It's a bad beat. And I'm like, what is that? And he's like, it's a jackpot that gets paid out. And so what it is is casinos have this, where they take a dollar, I don't know if every casino does it, but Tulalip Casino north of Seattle does. They take a dollar from every hand played in the entire poker room, right? Every hand that's played, they draw a dollar in and it goes to this jackpot. Well, the jackpot was like $83,000 at this point. And what happens is it's paid out when four of a kind gets beaten. So either by a higher four of a kind or a better hand, like a straight flush. So I win the hand, but the guy who loses it, he gets 50% of the jackpot. So he got like 41,000 and some change. I get like almost $21,000. I get 25% of the pot and the rest of the pot gets divided up amongst the rest of the players at the table. And it's just like, I, it's pretty surreal, right? It's just like, you're there and, you know, three hours before I, you know, I'm like stressing about how I'm going to get money to start my business. And then next thing you know, like, here it is, like, 
this is the money. Like it's, you know what I mean? Like I never thought it would happen um, that way. And I didn't, you know, I just, you know, I think I still don't really appreciate it to this time, like how incredibly rare something like this is, right? Like not just beating four of a kind, but like it being me, right? So like the, the, the guy who grabbed my hands to prevent me from touching the pot, which it takes like two hours from them to pay you out because they have to like, they literally check every card in the deck to make sure there's no markings on there. So you would have no like knowledge to be able to cheat the system, right? So it takes like two hours for them to pay us out. Um, you know, they review the camera footage from in there, everything. It's, it's pretty crazy. So, you know, we're all standing around, not playing poker, talking for two hours. And the, the guy, he's like this old Navy vet. And he told me that he had been going to that casino for, at that point, 17 years. And he had never been in the hand of a bad beat, let alone at the table of a bad beat in 17 years. Like he's seen other people do it. Right. And he, and he's told me he gambled regularly. So like, here I am, this 23-year-old kid who's been playing poker at casinos for like two months now. Um, yeah, and I'm in the hand, right? So it's just like, I don't know. I don't know what the odds of that are, right? I don't even know what the odds of like, uh, you know, a straight flush beating four of a kind, you know? Like someone told me it's like one in 16,000 hands. I don't know if it's, I don't know the math on it, but like, it's just that I would been there like maybe a dozen times at this point. And this dude's been going there for 17 years. Yeah. And you were able to, you were fortunate enough to get that kind of luck. I mean, that is uh, luck. It plays a big role in that. But, but I think like what's interesting is you got, you know, very lucky to get that initial bit of money, but then what you then did with it is really interesting, right? It's like, you then that was actually truly the need because you know you do find a lot of entrepreneurs digital and uh, offline right i don't i don't think this is uh, dependent on either one who will always be sort of like i don't know i feel like i've met countless of these types of entrepreneurs where it's like they're always raising money and it's like even if they get a couple hundred thousand or five hundred thousand which is a lot of money you know it's always like oh i'm still raising i'm always looking for more money it's like Instead, you took a little bit of money and you built actually a business with customers that grew. And I think there's a lesson in that where it's like, yeah, however you got the money, you know, I would you could argue luck plays a role in, even if you're raising venture capital. It's like, are you in the right networks? Or did you go to the right schools? Like, do you know the right people? Like a lot of times venture capital comes down to that. And not to make fun of that industry too much, but that is a lot of times where deals get sourced is through network. So luck plays a role for a lot of people is the point I'm making in terms of how they would get their initial bit of money, but then like what they do with that. Cause I mean, you're right. $20,000 isn't that much money to live and fund your business at the end of the day. But I'm curious about the next step of the story, right? Like what happens after that? Yeah. Well, like real quick. So like I had never made over 1150 an hour prior to this. Like yep. I never had a job that paid me more than eleven fifty an hour. So I remember like one tax return like was like $23,000 in like gross income in a year. Like that's like not, that's, that's, that's pre-tax, right? So like getting all this lump sum of money, which by the way, I paid the taxes year later. I, I was like, I can't afford to pay the taxes now. I need all this money for my business. I'll file my taxes a year late so I can use all this money. Um, but yeah, I mean, at the time it seemed like all the money I needed. Cause like I was under this like ridiculous illusion that all I needed to start this business that I, I calculated was like 25 grand. 
it was because I was assuming the demand was already there and that I would like, as soon as I made the product, it was going to sell. Right. Which, you know, which wasn't the case, obviously, like we talked about a few minutes ago, um, you know, like the demand really wasn't there, but at the moment, you know, I mean, it was just, I was on cloud nine, man. I mean, just, I really thought like, okay, th- I've got the idea. That's going to be a great business. I've got the money to do it now. Now I just got to go do it. So, I mean, that's what I did. You know, I, you know, a couple months later, I moved back to Arizona because I knew more people there and, you know, there was a lot more, it was cheaper to live than Seattle for sure. Um, so I moved back to Arizona and get the little warehouse and I get started, right. You know, I buy the raw materials, I buy the packaging, the bottles, um, literally had to go on YouTube to learn how to actually make the product. Um, luckily there was a couple of early adapters to the electronic cigarettes on there that had like made videos on how to like actually make the vape liquid product. So Learn how to make it through YouTube, trial and error it for a while. And then honestly, (laughs) like, yeah, (laughs) yeah, it really, it really, it really can be, it really can be. Um, There's just so much great content there for free that help people in a million different businesses. So, yeah, I mean, it can also be a colossal time waste, but it's, uh, doesn't have to be, it depends on how you use it. (laughs) Yeah. I try to be careful with it. Um, you know, especially now having little kids, like not, being on there a lot but i mean at the time like you know without resources like alibaba.com and youtube and you know uh, a bs story by my buddy who works at the smoke shop like this business wouldn't exist right like yeah i you know i don't know what i do now maybe sell cars or something but uh <laughs> you know maybe i would have a different business who knows but you know without those like those two digital resources alibaba and youtube yeah i don't really see how this thing would have happened so there's three questions I have about the business that are uh, yeah. all probably kind of related uh, and you can take them in whichever order you want. So so one is the question I was getting to earlier, which is when you started this business and you started trying to grow it, the demand wasn't quite there. Now, obviously, we're at a point where everybody kind of knows what this product is. You're dealing with demand that already exists. How did you bridge that gap in the middle? Like, Did you do anything to try to educate customers? So that's one question. The second question is, um, you scaled a retail business, which, and it it sounds like not through a franchise model, like it's through corporate owned, uh, stores. So how do you kind of think about that from like a standardization or playbook standpoint? Like you guys are opening up two new location locations currently, like this is not a one-off type of thing that you do. It's like, I'm sure at this point after 44, you know, plus stores, you have some kind of playbook or, or process. And then the third question, which is also tightly related to all this is how did you then later finance all this growth? So this like 44 stores or whatever, I'm sure there's a lot of upfront costs that go into a retail business. So are you purely funding that out of revenue? Is it funded through some kind of loan mechanism? Did you end up raising money later from other people? So I guess take those three questions in whatever order you think makes the most sense. But yeah, I'll start at number one. Yeah, I'll start at number one. That way it kind of keeps like a linear timeline to some degree. So yeah, I tried to bridge the gap. Um, you know, I realized that a lot of the people who had my product in their store weren't even selling the vapor devices that you could use the liquid in, right? Like it was like selling gasoline with no cars, right? So, but like, I just didn't have a lot of money, right? So actually my, my brother, the same one I lived with in Washington, literally let me use his, he had a credit card with like a $6,000 limit or something. He like gave me his credit card and 
I would buy the kits from China and then I'd resell them to the smoke shops at like almost no markup, but just to get them to have it in their store so they could then sell it to the customers that would buy my liquid, right? But like, you know, $6,000 is nothing, right? And, you know, so, I mean, I was turning and burning on that card. I mean, I was probably paying it off like every week. I would max it out, get a shipment in, go sell it. And I made those guys, I made them pay me up front for that stuff because I had it on a credit card. I'd pay off the credit card, buy another 6,000 worth. And I just kept doing that. I think I probably did that 10 or 20 times, right? And all the while, like not really making much profit on the devices. But I knew that like, if there's no devices, then you're not going to sell the liquid. Like, you know, it's ass backward, but like how I started, I started with the, the, the liquid without there being the hardware there. So that's kind of, that's the only really thing that I did to try and bridge that gap other than being like a relentless advocate for it. Anytime I saw someone smoking a cigarette, I would like go talk to them, right? I would show them what I was doing. I'd give them a business card. Um, you know, I used to carry kits around in my car and like sell them to people. Um, like, here, man, give me 20 bucks. I'll give you the bottle of liquid for free. Here's my card. Go on my website sort of thing. That's awesome. So, I mean, I, I, yeah, I just, I just didn't have the scale to really like move the needle on the market. So it was really like, I just had to do what I could do individually. And a lot of it was to keep myself busy because, you know, I had made all this product had all this raw material sitting there and there's no demand. So like, you know, there was a lot of days where like, you just, there was nothing to do. I'd love to say I was working 60, 70 hours a week that first year. That'd be a lie. There was a lot of weeks where like, I spent the whole week driving around to smoke shops, collecting $10 here, 20 bucks there, right? Trying to get the smoke shop guys to, to sell more. And they were like, how am I supposed to sell more? Right? So I, I guess one trick I did do is I took my contact in China that I was buying devices from, and I literally gave her contact info to every smoke shop. I said, look, just go buy direct from her, right? Like, you know, you know, this is going to sell at some point, right? Like buy it from her. That way you get it at what I would have paid for it and you can sell it in your store now. So like I gave away that like division of business, I, I guess you could say, um, yeah, to try yeah. and like spur growth. But I realized like at $6,000 per like turn on product, like I wasn't, I really wasn't moving the needle. So I just literally printed out her WeChat name and her email address and on these sheets of paper, at the library because I didn't have a printer and I just cut them with scissors and I literally gave this slip of paper to like everybody. I was like, dude, like just buy them from her and <laughs> I'll sell you the juice. Right. Right. That's what we should call it. We call it vape juice is one of the slangs for it. So yeah, yeah so that's, but, that's the answer to your first question, but yeah. Yeah, no, that makes, I mean, that makes sense. It's like, that is actually an interesting um, thing that you were saying about going around and giving out these kits. It actually reminds me of, so I used to work for um, the cosmetics company Estee Lauder for a couple of years. And there was kind of a famous story that the founder herself, Estee Lauder, like probably like close to a hundred years ago now, maybe it was like 80, 90 years ago when she started the business, she would ride around the trains in New York city during the day, because usually that would be like housewives would be kind of going around doing their shopping at that time. And she would just talk to them and give them free samples and like tell them about <laughs> the products. Cause that was her target. That was like her target audience. Yeah. She's just hustling wow. like with her bag of stuff and like telling people about it and like giving it away. And it's like, I mean, you kind of did a very similar playbook there. Yeah. I mean like, so there's, you know, there's only so much you can do. I mean, it's like, you know, there's, I couldn't spur the demand otherwise, but it was just, like you're trying to 
you're trying to build this market that doesn't quite exist yet. Like, I mean, it, it existed, but not to the level it does now and not even to the right. level it did a year later. I mean, like that's another part that, you know, I caught a huge stroke of luck was, you know, you, I could have gone to the t-shirt printing business where there's a million guys printing t-shirts. Right. Um, but I got into something that was going to like have huge consumer adaptation relatively soon to me getting in. I, I was just like a little early. Like I was a year and a half early realistically, but, yeah. um, you know, it wasn't an old dying industry or a stagnant industry, but I mean, yeah, I just, I think when you're getting started, like, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And you're like, you're trying to come up with ideas like, okay, how do I get more people to use the product? Right. So like tell everybody who smokes about it. Right. And then you'd be a constant advocate, um, and a bit of a, an annoying individual. Like, you know, most people don't want to like be told that smoking's bad for you when they're smoking a cigarette. Um, yeah, it's pretty, but, you know, pretty I mean, annoying to hear that. <laughs> yeah. And I would do that. Like I would like, I'd see like people smoking like outside of a bar or something or a restaurant. I would literally just go up there and like, hi, I'm John Paul. Like, Hey, let me tell you about this stuff. Like it's called electronic cigarettes. Like you really should get off cigarettes. They're so bad for you. And like, here's this great alternative. And it is truly an amazing alternative. I mean, it's helped more people. It's like one of the, pretty much the only ultra effective, uh, risk reduction tools for cigarettes. I mean, if the patch worked as well as I think pharmaceutical companies hoped it would, I mean, we wouldn't need electronic cigarettes, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, I think there's like an estimated like 20-ish million vape users nowadays. That, that's 20 million less people smoking cigarettes now than there was a decade ago. So, I mean, it's obviously effective, but. And so um, your second question about, you know, the playbook. So look, a lot of that, yeah, obviously we've, we have obviously standardized the opening stores. You know, when we opened that first store, it took us the better part of four months to get it done, right? Um, you know, we found this crummy little retail spot on Craigslist. Lady was subleasing it illegally, apparently. I found out from the landlord afterwards, but he was cool. She was always buying on the rent and I guaranteed him I'd never be late and I'd never been late. Um, you know, but it took us four months. Like, we just didn't know what we were doing, right? Like we didn't, like we made e-liquid we didn't like deal in hardware and the devices and all the accessories you need in a brick and mortar store so it was a lot of trial and error a lot of road trips to la where a lot of the vape wholesalers and importers were um and yeah it was just constantly you know like oh we need more of this we need more of this and we spent a ton of money getting that first store going but um you know, we, we eventually got to a point where like we were doing this so regularly that we did standardize it. But a lot of the credit for that goes to uh, employees of mine. Right. So like, you know, I did everything in the business in the early days for the first, I mean, really until 2017, I did everything. Right. Um, so I knew, I knew what I knew. Right. And I just would get stuff done. But like when you're trying to scale, like there's only so many hours in the day. So and they were like, hey, we need to standardize this. We need to standardize training and how we find a location, how we build out a location. And I said, look, I know how to do it. But if you want to standardize it, then it's on you. You go figure out how to standardize it. Like shadow me and just write down everything that I do as part of the process. And that's kind of what happened, right? I was just just doing it. And they were like, we need a system. So there's a you know huge credit to them for having the foresight to do that. Yeah. No, absolutely. And then probably that, that compounds over time, right? I'm guessing with, as you do, you know, two, three, four, 10, 20, like it just gets like the system gets better. And that's why McDonald's yeah. can open up, you know, 
tens of thousands of stores around the world and, and kind of, they all have roughly the same feel. Right. So we, we, you know, we try to mimic that to a degree. I mean, obviously we're not like, obviously nowhere near McDonald's size, but like, you know, we standardize pricing in all retail locations, right? Even though we had some stores that we probably could have gotten away with considerably higher pricing just because there was no competitors for like a great distance around. Yeah. So we like from day one, I did realize that to, to make a brand, you needed to like standardize as much as possible, right? Product selection in stores, the pricing. So no matter whether you were in our stores in Colorado or Texas or Arizona, that you were going to find the same product selection with the same pricing as you would at the stores in Arizona. Um, so luckily we had that insight from day one to do it that yeah, way. Yeah. So you had that sort of uh, identity that you were able to kind of keep consistent. And yeah, and then I guess the third question, which is also tied into all of this, is financing that growth. So how did you, you know, I obviously raised that, not raised, sorry, won that little bit of money at the beginning. But then how did you go from, you know, one store to five to 10? It was 100% funded through the revenue of the, of the existing stores. Did you have some other mechanism to finance it? Or how, how did you go about doing that? No, it was purely financed through cash flow. Right. So, you know, we opened one store in 2014, not anticipating to ever open more. And it did so well, right? Like there was, by 2014, there was a huge demand for like boutique vape retailers, right? Like, and I didn't even know that when I opened the store, like, but we opened it. I mean, we were already breaking even before our neon sign was installed in the side of the building. Right. Wow. Um, and, and all we, you know, we can't advertise through traditional methods for the vape industry because it's a nicotine product, right? So, right. you know, we have a Google My Business page and a Facebook page. And that was it. Like, that was it. Like, I couldn't do any digital ads. I used to do mailers, you know, that sort of thing. But those never really moved the needle. But yeah, it just, it took off. And I realized, like, within the first 45, 60 days of that first store that I was like, this is the business to be in, right? Like, the timing was just perfect in that sense. So, you know, within the first four months, we were already under lease for our second location. We opened that one up late 2014 and we did two a year for the first three years, you know, two in 14, two 2015, two in 2016. But like everything changed in 2017. Uh, you know, the FDA was getting ready to regulate the industry in 2016. Uh, and the head of the FDA at the time in 2017 pushed that regulation date back to from 2018 to 2022, they'd move that anticipated regulation date back. You know, by that point, you know, the six stores were producing, you know, close to four and a half million dollars a year in revenue from those six stores. And I had the realization that like, this was the window of opportunity that I would never get back. Right. Like, you know, we, we woke up one day thinking we're going to be out of business in a year and a half when they regulate us to now they gave us a, a five year window. Right. Um, and so what I basically did was, is I, uh, I owned like a couple of rental properties. I sold them. I owned a piece of land that I was going to build a house on someday, sold the land. I sold every stock I owned. Um, I cashed out, refinanced my primary residence and I pumped it all in the new stores. And we went from six stores to 52 stores in 24 months. Wow. Yeah, we were we were we were opening a new retail store every eighteen days for two years. <laughs> so talk about that playbook right there. 
I mean, you had to have a playbook. Yeah. So, yeah. okay. So, yeah. Well, there was actually no playbook at this point. Um, yeah. I was firing from the hip on a lot of it. But the the good thing is, is that like we had some pretty good employees who really stepped up and took ownership of various departments. Um, you know, purchasing. And I really just focused on like, you know, they were focusing on purchasing, hiring, uh, training. So a lot of them really saw the opportunity when I was, when I went out there and announced to them like, Hey, like we're going to grow like crazy and we're going to do it really, really fast. So like so you, anybody, anybody who wants more, like, let me know, like there's more opportunity here other than just being like a, a crew member at a store. Right. Like right. you want right. more, make sure, make sure I know, like talk to me. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then did you, so that's kind of what led to you taking yourself out of the business essentially, right? Cause to grow that big, you obviously can't be doing every single thing. That's essentially. Well, yeah, I, I took myself out of a lot of the roles. I mean, so like, you know, at six stores, I was a small business owner. Like right. I was working at that point, I was working 60, 70 hour weeks, right? I'm doing all the purchasing, all the hiring, all the firing. I'm managing every store manager myself. And it's like kind of like the small business owner life, right? But it's kind of a nightmare because you have no free time. You can never go on vacation. Or if you do, you know, you're freaked out the whole time that you're gone, that the place is going to burn down. Um, so it, you know, growth forced me to delegate and let people experiment with building out their own departments. Um, something really cool that I want to mention is like every single employee I have to date has started off at entry level. Every single, even the guy who's currently the CEO was entry level in 2016. Like there, yeah, there's no like, hey, we're going to bring in this expert. Like literally every, everybody from the IT to warehouse managers, production managers, um, the CEO, everybody started off at entry level. So like there's this like shared experience with that, right? Like everybody has taken their lumps. Everybody started off at the bottom of the ladder. And it really is like, I don't know, it, it's, it's, it's like the thing I'm proud of, most proud of in this business is that I took kids at 19 and now like seeing them develop over the last five, six, seven years into like, you know, fully fledged like people where they're like, and they just built out and like, and a lot of it was on them. Like I didn't have all these systems. I didn't know what I was doing. It just seemed, it seemed logical to me to promote from within and hire from without. Right. So I was like, who wants to be this? Like, who wants this role? Like shoot me an email. Like I would message like in our internal messaging stuff, I would say like, Hey, like I need someone to be in head of purchasing. Like who wants to do that? And then people would email me. Yeah. I'd, I'd interview them and I'd pick who I thought was the best. And it's not that like, like I said, it wasn't like I had some grand scheme that like, Oh, we're going to build this amazing company culture through this method. It was just, I had a distrust of outsiders that like these guys know the business the best, right? They're in it every day and there's a need for, for, for people to step up. So, you know, I gave them that opportunity, but the credit goes to them for like taking it and learning because I couldn't train them. I didn't know how to do any of this stuff. Um, you know, I mean, these guys would like literally get promoted and then like go like start taking online courses and like inventory management systems and watching YouTube videos and reading books and, because I just, I didn't have the tools to give them what they needed. So they had to go find it out for themselves. So like, I don't know, it's just a really, I think it's probably pretty unique um, for businesses our size. And it's probably so satisfying to watch. I mean, we're, 
Um, were there any major mistakes? That- so during that huge growth period, I was obviously focused on growth. That was the, I cared about two numbers, uh, store count and revenue. That was it. I was always like, we can worry about like cutting costs and becoming more profitable later. Right now we need to like establish like geographic dominance in certain areas. Right. So that's all I cared about was opening up new stores and growing revenue. So there was a lot of mistakes that were made. There was a lot of abuse of the system to, you know, some of employees that were around at that time, you know, they saw that they could just kind of create their own little fiefdoms inside the system. Um, And yeah, I look back and I think the fact that we didn't implode from these type of issues is kind of a mini miracle, right? But, um, but I mean, that shows the resilience of the organization that like there was, you know, bad actors in any organization and especially when you're growing fast and, you know, your boss doesn't have the foresight to put oversight on these guys. I just trust, I trusted people from within, right? I trust that they were going to do the right thing, building out the company. And a lot of times that was abused, right? Um, but, you know, they're gotten rid of and somebody else takes their place and the organization keeps growing and getting stronger for it, right? And and I think there's a great sense of it being uh, pretty meritocracy. You know, I mean, you know, it's people are promoted based on what they've been able to achieve and do, right? It's not, oh, you've been here the longest or you're the closest to uh, John Paul, you guys are friends, so you're going to get promoted. No, it's really who's the best for that role within the organization. That's who's getting it. Yeah. So that, and that makes people motivated to, to do things. Absolutely. I, yeah. It's a tremendous sense of self-ownership, right? Like, you know, I am the owner of the company, but like these guys have, you know, all come from backgrounds and jobs that really didn't fit, you know, a, a, you know, a brick and mortar business for a lot, you know, a lot of them worked retail, but you know, they've been able to come in and like really put their stamp on the company and kind of, you know, help shape its trajectory um, by their, you know, you know, they have influence, right, in this company. So it's um, it's pretty incredible, you know, to, to look at it from now that I've stepped away to look at it and see, you know, what we built and how we built it. Um, and, you know, there's just not enough time on this podcast to go into it in that great of detail, but like it's it's pretty incredible to look back and see. I mean, it might even, I mean, yeah, it probably feels like a minor miracle. It does. It does. You know, it, sometimes I think, and I look at all these, these landmines that we like stepped on, but they just didn't kill us. Right. Um, yeah. I, you know, so it, it is pretty, it's pretty crazy, um, to look back on. So as we, as we wrap up, one thing I always like to ask everyone, uh, who comes on the show is resources that have inspired them or that they use on a regular basis. Um, and those resources could be anything from like books, podcasts, YouTube videos, whatever, um, people that they look at. So curious to hear, like, what are some resources that you've found to be super helpful to you in your journey, um, and, and sources of inspiration? Yeah. So I think I, you know, I've got some books that have obviously really shaped, you know, my journey as being an entrepreneur. And I'd say like the first one would definitely be Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, right? Like I was introduced to that book when I was 14. And I always had like an entrepreneurial bent prior to that as it, when I was young. But reading that book, I get really, and I read it probably 20 times as a teenager, right? And it really just, I don't know, I, I still read parts of it now and again as an adult. Um, 
but I think anybody who's young and getting started out, like, I think it's a great book. I, I mean, I'm not sure how much of it's practical. A lot of it's, uh, you know, you know, the mind over matter sort of thing. But I mean, I found it inspirational my entire life. Another one that I've always found inspiring, The Everything Store by Brad Stone. Like, I think for anybody who's doing retail, even though his is digital retail, um, Amazon was always like, it's just incredible what they've built, right? You know, starting off selling books and becoming, you know, what they are now. Like, it's just huge, right? It's um, it's a it's a fantastic book for anybody, even if you're not an entrepreneur. But um, you know, you know, recently I've you know gotten active on more active on Twitter, and I've come across a lot of great resources there that like I didn't have early on, and I think that's I don't know if you know SMB Twitter existed ten years ago. Um, but I sure as heck didn't know about it. Um, so I think there's just a tremendous amount of resources out there for young entrepreneurs looking for, um, uh, you know, looking for inspiration, looking for mentors, looking for people to connect to. Um, you know, like I said, I didn't have that 10 years ago. I really wish I did. Um, but it's out there for you, you know, if you're looking for it. Yeah. And you mentioned Alibaba being another resource that people should yeah absolutely take a look at or, or, or and things that probably people aren't even that's probably a site people i mean i'm sure some people have really looked at it but it's something that i think is slightly outside the mainstream yeah so i mean if you're doing you know even a you know e-commerce business you know at some point you're probably going to be buying something from china and it, i mean it's just a tremendous resource i mean it's literally you can find anything in the world there and if you think back to like 20 years ago you would have had to go to china to, to find a product or to find a vendor, find something that can manufacture something for you, right? And I think that's the power of what Jack Ma built with Alibaba is that, you know, regular guys like me in America with internet connection could access every product, you know, like almost every product made in China. I mean, and without it, I don't know where I'd be. I mean, because that was the original source for the the vapor uh, products, the, the devices themselves, um, you know, so I think... I don't know if it's underutilized by people. I'm not really sure, but I never really hear anybody talk about it ever. And I feel like it's definitely an avenue for looking at new ideas, at least new products that are coming out of there. Yep, absolutely. So um, I'm definitely going to put your Twitter and some of these resources in the, in the show notes. Uh, if someone wants to learn more about you or get in touch, what's the, the best way Through to Twitter, do Twitter, right? Just... Um, you know, shoot me a DM and, you know, I love connecting with, you know, entrepreneurs at whatever stage they are in their journey. Um, and hopefully I can provide some sort of value as well. You know, I don't tweet a ton, but, uh, you know, slowly I'll get into it more, but I'm happy to hop on calls with just about anybody, um, for any reason almost. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm gonna um, also include a link to that thread in uh, that I came across you through awesome. the poker one, just so yeah. people can see kind of more details there if they yeah. if they want to. Awesome. Well, JP, thank you again for for coming on, and uh, I think this is this was a really fun one. Nice, nice job getting your first. Oh, podcast thanks, Neil. Out I appreciate it, and um, thanks for hitting me up to do this. You know, it's been uh, awesome to get to know you, and um, it's an honor to be on your show, man. Yeah. Well, let's see what uh, what people say about it on on, on Twitter. So. Um, if you, if you listen to this episode, you want to reach out to us, uh, just tag us on Twitter and we'll, we'll obviously respond and get back to you. Um, and as usual, you can support the show, uh, directly. So we don't do ads here. 
but you can support the show directly on Fountain or any other podcast 2.0 player. Um, you can stream value in sats um, or you can boost the podcast. And obviously the best way to actually support the show beyond Fountain is just to leave a review or text a friend about it. That, that goes a long way. It's how most people hear about this show because... You know, I have some people who follow me on Twitter, but not a, you know, I'm not a 100,000, 200,000 type uh, Twitter person. So the best thing you can do if you enjoyed this episode, text it to a friend and see what they think about it. With that, we'll uh, see you guys next time.